Welcome to the DNet Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to a fresh edition of the DNet Stumps podcast. It is absolutely great to be with you wherever you may be listening to this podcast. And just a reminder that you can also subscribe to the DNet Stumps podcast via the likes of iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, Pocketcast, and any other cast you can think of that provides a pod. <laughs> listen, we have some fantastic interviews with you as well that you can listen to the likes of David Gower, Michael Holding, Sean Pollock, and many, many more great interviews as well. It'll be wonderful for you to subscribe and to uh, give us a bit of feedback as to what you think of the ongoing interviews. Not a great deal of cricket to talk about, but it's always great to have you along. My name is Dean Duplessis, and once again, a very warm welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Now, if you've been listening to a number of podcasts, which thankfully I know a couple of people have, even if it is just the amount of fingers on my one hand, then you will know that we've been involved with a very interesting series which got underway probably about a month or or so ago. And that was with the South African-based journalist Neil Manthorpe, a fantastic interview that myself, it's not really an interview, is it? It's just a good old cricket chat that we've had where we have been reminiscing and remembering because Manners was the one who actually invited me into the commentary box and actually got my career started way back in July 2001, coming up to 19 years, goodness me. And we've been talking about a number of things. South Africa's readmission to the international scene, that was way back in part one, and how they performed at the World Cup. And then leading into part two, we started off by talking about the ability to reverse swing the ball, how bowlers had the natural ability to do it. We also spoke about exaggerated big hits, which was quite funny. He also has a lovely story to tell about the two of us given the fact that Neil was my mentor and still is my colleague and friend. And now we get into the third and final part. And we start off uh, with Neil Manthorpe discussing, as a commentator, some of the more favorite games that uh, he has been able to witness. And don't forget, there's quite a bit, given the fact that he started commentating uh, domestically back in the late 80s. But of course, he would have been a part of the international scene in 1991-92. So here's Neil Manthorpe starting off the third and final part of the conversation we've had by talking about some of his most favourite games he's been privileged enough to cover. Let me ask you, do you think that I'm going to struggle? Do you think I'm going to say, oh, can I have three or five? Or do you think, do you suspect that there is actually one that stands out? I have a funny little feeling you're going to say that there is one. I I interviewed Pommy Mbangwa and I asked him a similar question and he said, oh gosh, there's so many, which of course there are, you know. You know, he remembers the 4-3-8, he remembers Australia, South Africa's very good run chase against Australia and Perth and a couple of Zimbabwe games as well. But I have a funny feeling you will be able to tell me exactly which one really stands out for you. Yeah, 2008 Australia. Um, oh, yes. You know, that, South Africa's 2012 tour to England was, was absolutely brilliant. And the 2008 tour to, to England when Graham Smith made the 154, which I think is the greatest innings by a South African um, in my lifetime and any others, by the I way, agree. I agree uh, they, they, you know, those, those two tours really, really special. But 
But purely the drama and the improbability and the unlikelihood of winning those first two test matches, um, the fact that South Africa had come actually very close to upsetting Australia three years earlier in 2005 um, when Shane Warne said, uh, Australia won the series 2-0, but, you know, Graham Smith became only the second captain to lose a test match having declared in both innings. Oh, yes. Um, you know, in the so and Shane Warne said, "Oh, that this must be the worst South African team ever to to, to visit these shores," which was preposterous. Um, and then, the, the for three years, Mickey Arthur and Graham Smith planned not on a daily basis, but for the next three years, they planned and talked about how they were going to do things differently, how they would learn from their mistakes, um, and it was a complete. It was they did everything. That they put right from the fact that they had a 10 day warm up period in which they actually, in Perth, um, in which they uh, had played very little cricket. And then chasing down 414 um, was JP Dumini making his debut, scoring the winning runs. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, that it was just, you know, you thought it doesn't get better than that. And given that I had experienced nothing but the uh, defeat and the very occasionally rare draw against Australia, I, I remember saying to Maliki and Sabo and Aslam Kaito, we, that was the last tour, by the way, that uh, we travelled for, for radio, yeah, SABC right? radio, yes. unfortunately. Then uh, um, everything's been studio-based after that. But So we were there commentating together, and I just remember t turning to Maliki and Aslam and saying, you know what, even if we lose the next two test matches... It's it's been worth it. I mean, that's just you know it's the second highest run chase in the history of Test cricket, and then we get to the MCG, which is a highlight in itself. It's just the most awe-inspiring, awe-inspiring venue. Um, there's a famous story of uh, of of I think it was Mark Taylor and uh, or perhaps Steve Waugh walking out to toss in a Test match in which Richie Richardson was was captaining the West Indies, and it was his first tour to Australia. And he looked at uh, the the Great South Stand. Mm. Or was it the Great West? No, it's the Great South Stand. And uh, he just said, I'm walking out to toss with uh, Steve Waugh. He said, how many people does that stand hold? <laughs> and <laughs> Steve Waugh said, I'm not sure, mate. I think it's uh, 45,000 or 48,000. 48, to which Richie Richardson replied, that's more people than live on my island. <laughs> <laughs> wow. wow. And that he comes from Barbuda, and, and that's that's a fact, you know. Yeah, I think back then the, the population of, of his country was about 30,000. So uh, anyway, um, we get to the MCG, and then things go horrendously pear-shaped. I mean, just so bad. Uh, you know, Ricky Pontic scores 100, Australia 390, South Africa 213 for, for seven. They, you know, they they just scraped past the follow-on with three wickets left, and fast forward, Dale Stain comes in, makes seventy-six at number nine, takes ten wickets in the match, and they win uh, before lunch on the fifth day. It's just the most impossible and and unlikely. I mean, you know, in 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 soccer terms, they are. Six nil down at half time, and and they win it seven six. Yeah. You know, uh, or in fact eight six probably. Eight, six. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it, it was just everything, everything. And and here's the thing uh, that really kicks in for me is that 
the historical significance to add so much context, I think, and, and relevance to to sporting achievement. And when something has not been done ever before in almost a century and, you know, a dozen or so attempts, I think it, 10 previous tours South Africa had made, gone to Australia and never won. Um, and it was it was an obsession, uh, as just as was beating Australia here in South Africa for the first time since isolation. Um but as you mentioned, Bill Lurie's uh, tour, you know, South Africa won that one, 4-0. Yeah, 4-0. Um, so, but, so there, it, there was precedent. No South African team had ever won in Australia before. And they go there and they chase down 414 and then come back from, from you know, twitching with life to win the MCG test. And then, of course, we thought, OK, it is impossible to top that or to match it. <laughs> you know, the SCG, the... New Year's Test match is going to be an absolute uh, uh, after the Lord Mayor's show anti-climax. But then Graham Smith does his thing, comes oh, out to bat to try and save the Test match with his broken hand. <laughs> I mean, it just you know, I, I, when he when he appeared, um, and I think it's been documented now. Not only was he the first South African captain ever to get a standing ovation from any crowd in Australia. Um, but but you know he's the first. So there, there was this tension um, when the ninth wicket fell. When Mackay and Cheney was no, it wasn't Mackay and Cheney, was it? It was Dale Stain, um, and uh, and then he appeared because nobody had could see him. He disappeared. Um, he was right in the back of the change room being kicked out by Paul Harris and Mornay Morkel, who had to dress him because, uh, you know, and then Neil McKenzie was ripping open one of his batting gloves in order to um, push it over the cast that was on his broken hand. Wow. All this was taking place in the back of the change room. So the TV cameras had been looking, focusing on the change room for oh, 40 minutes beforehand and there would just be no sign of him. And... I remember being on radio and saying, uh, there's been no sign of Graham Smith. Uh, many people might take that to mean that, uh, you know, he's changed into his tracksuit and is getting ready for the post-match presentation, but I wouldn't be so sure. Uh, so I, I did have an inkling. Um, I didn't really believe it because, you know, it was a serious fracture, broken, broken hand. Yes. Um, and when he appeared and there was a standing ovation and I just, every hair on my body stood up, you know, I mean, I had, I had tears in my eyes and, and I wasn't the only one. It was just the most fabulous series for me. I, I, That's not to say there haven't been lots of other brilliant no, ones, no, but no, 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 that, that just stands out yeah. head and shoulders. I, I was actually going to ask you that. Did you actually have tears in your eyes? You know, did you get the, the whole goosebump material, tears in your eyes? Because I've had that before when, and it's not just from a Zimbabwean perspective, admittedly, because I am Zimbabwean, it would lean more towards, you know, achievements by Zimbabweans. But, you know, because I am a, a, a a cricket lover, and I'm afraid very much more of a Test cricket lover. You know, you know, when Sachin Tendulkar retired, I had tears in my eyes. When Kumar Sangakkara made his speech, and he retired, I had tears in my eyes because these were legends of the game. You know that we really appreciated. So I hear you um, in terms of goosebump material. And another thing as well, Manners, is I often find that I I struggle to get as excited. And I, this is a big statement I'm going to make is. 
I mean, Virat Kohli, when he gets a hundred, versus when we were much younger watching a Sachin Tendulkar take on an Alan Donald, a Glenn McGrath, a Brett Lee, and win the contest and score a brilliant hundred. Why is that? I, I find that I, I tend to remember the the players of the 1990s and early 2000s, you know, when we were establishing ourselves more than what Vera Kohli or Steve Smith or any of the newer players did today. I wonder why that is. First of all, Dino, um, your eyes are no good for anything other than crying, so at least they've got a use, eh? <laughs> Correct. That's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what it is, mate. It's um, It's... It's, it's the gladiatorial aspect of test cricket um, because it's defined by human endurance. When you get a, a contest like Alan Donald against Mike Atherton at Trent Bridge, yeah. 98, when you get those, those moments, it is, it is two gladiators and it's... Uh, I really don't want to use any war analogies or, you know, I mean, it's wrong to say it's a fight to the death. It's not a fight to the death. Of course it's not. But it is um, a, a fight until one man backs down or or the wicket is taken or the bowler is too exhausted to carry on. There, it, there's, a, there's no finite time. So it's not like a great moment, um, but uh, the captain's going to have to take him off because he needs to keep two overs for the end. When you get those great, great moments, I mean, that's why it's, you know, that's why it's called Test Cricket, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, that, that's, it is, you, you get locked into a contest um, and there's nowhere for the batsman to hide um, other than taking a quick single. But, um, you know, get down the other end and, <laughs> and many a great batsman has, has done that. There's no shame in doing that. But when a bowler really, really gets on top of you, your batsman can't just take a quick single because um, that's the bowler's skill. And we, we as cricket lovers, you're just watching it or listening to it, uh, you feel that energy, you feel that tension and you get drawn into it. And that's what test cricket offers you that, um, that, that no other form of the game does. I mean, it's instant gratification, of course. And 50 over cricket used to be, I remember, <laughs> I tell you what, Dean, I started, I started commentating in the late 80s you know, and people then said, we used to say, oh, well, look, you know, um, we'll give it our best shot. This is before a 50-over game, you know, but but it, but it's a, it's a bit of a lottery, you know, on the day, uh, you know, that we just have to hope things go our way. Um, well, <laughs> we've now got to the point where T20 cricket is regarded as a science. No longer do we say it's a lottery. Um, you know, there's so many... So much attention to detail that goes into. I remember. I mean, Eric Simons. I'm very close to. He's one of my great friends. Oh, yes. He's one of the the best T20 coaches and analysts. Um, and he says it's it's not. It's down to science. It's down to the one or two percentage points difference that uh, that you can make. Um, um, and so, yeah, I, I think 50 over cricket is certainly far far from being a lottery. And though I greatly admire Virat Kohli, I I admire him. In one-day cricket, um, almost um, not not from a distance, but but it, it's like a, a the, the physical achievement. I mean, his record in run chases defies, but it's absolutely unprecedented. Yeah. To me, up to my mind, he is the greatest fifty-over batsman 
that that there has been in terms of the relentless efficiency with which he and ruthlessness with which he chases down totals. But you know, I I I look at it much in the way that that I admire. Um, there's a there's a have you ever seen the lumberjack games? Well, one of the events is you know they, they have to chop through a, a, a the trunk of a tree yes, in as yes. short a time as possible, yeah. and it's vastly impressive. You, you, you can't help but be impressed. Another one is when they have to run up uh, a vertical you know flagpole with just using a leather strap and spiked shoes. It is immensely impressive, but I, I find it, you know, I can't relate to it. <laughs> it is it, physically, it is extraordinary, and it must involve enormous strength and conditioning and preparedness and and a very sharp axe. But I can't relate to it in the same way that I can to a particularly gripping spell of test cricket and you're obviously the same and yeah. i don't think we're alone no no i uh, we're certainly not alone at all i i just i don't know you know i would have that that feeling of anticipation watching for example shane warne bowling to sachin tendulkar alan donald face uh, bowling to to mike atherton as you've already mentioned and there's quite a few others uh versus you know for example a kakhisa rabada or a jofra archer bowling to steve smith they're good contests, but they just don't feel... I, I don't have that same, you know, holding my breath, clammy hands um, that I would have with the, the current cricketers as I would have done 20 to 25 years ago, watching your Warns, your Tendulkas, or, you know, your, your Andy Flower getting a Test 100 versus a Brendan Taylor getting your Test 100. And a BT, if you're listening, it's, it's nothing personal at all. But I'm sure you understand what I mean is that we, I tend to gravitate towards the older players who I grew up watching and who I started to learn my trade uh, watching versus the, the current crop of players. Yeah, well, um, that's just because you're a nostal- nostalgic old fart, mate. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, what, when people say to me, who are the best bowlers you ever saw? I, I, it's one thing um, to say uh, bowlers who had incredible skill. Um, you know, that I, I'm, I wouldn't, I don't think I'm qualified to judge who is the most skillful bowler. The only criteria that I can apply to 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 the best bowlers that I ever saw were those who were capable of bowling five or six over spells um, and I couldn't take my eyes off it because I believe there could be a wicket with any delivery at any moment. Um, So, um, you know, bowlers who who would... and weren't like that all the time throughout their careers. I don't believe that such a bowler has ever existed. But bowlers who were able to bowl five or six overs in helpful conditions... Um, when the opposition were rattled or whatever, where you honestly believed they were bowling wicket-taking deliveries with every single delivery. So they weren't setting up. And there was one spell that Vernon Philander bowled to Virat Kohli, which was a genius, genius spell. I could see what was happening. And I think that Virat Kohli could probably see what was happening as well. But Vernon Philander bowled in 14 consecutive away swingers, starting six six inches outside off stump and... Coley only had to play at two of them, but it was a way swing, a way swing, a way, just not big booming away swingers, but just enough, just shaping away, just shaping away. And I'm thinking, I wonder how long he's going to carry on setting him up. And, uh, you know, it was 
absorbing. It was thrilling, but I knew that Vernon would be bowling, uh, you know, a, a significant number of those deliveries to him because it was early on in his innings. Um, but it wasn't edge of the seat gripping, um, you know, because you, you you could see what was going, and it was highly, highly skillful. Um, but you know, you if I needed to go for a P, I could mm. Um, mm. Uh, because I knew that, that that he wouldn't be going for the kill for a while. Um, and then, sure enough, ball number 15, the nitbacker, LBW, Virat Kohli gone. It was genius stuff. But it wasn't, you know, I, like I said, it wasn't, I can't take my eyes off this. Uh, so those bowlers for me, uh, Dale Stain. I mean, Dale Stain took six for eight against Pakistan, Pakistan. at the Wanderers. Yes. Six for eight. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's happens at under eight level. It's ludicrous. You know, when when... Preschool teams get bowled out for, for 16, then somebody can take six for eight. Yeah. He took six for eight yeah. at the Wanderers in a test match against Pakistan. It was, you couldn't take your eyes off it. Um, Alan Donald bowled spells like that. Shane Warne uh, bowled spells like that, usually against South Africa, <laughs> uh, where you just thought, you know, he's got, he's got the ball on a string here. The batsmen haven't got a, a clue. They could be a wicket with every single delivery. Like, really mesmerising stuff. Um, and a, a few other bowlers, uh, like Wakar, Wakar Yunus was, uh, you know, capable of bowling spells like that when the ball was reverse swinging. Yeah. Wazim Makram. Um, yeah, but Michael Holding. Yes. A, a few, you know, where I just remember going, I can't. I can't take my eyes off this. There, there were, there were. Oh, and Brian Strang. Oh, Brian, Brian Strang. Yes, he did. Absolutely. Yeah, he was. A, he was a tricky. I mean, I remember Steve Waugh confiding in his teammates after the one-off Test match in 1999 at Harare Sports Club, and and him saying, "I'd much rather be facing Kurtley as opposed to Brian Strang because I have no idea what this guy, because of the lack of pace, but the little bit of nibble that he has, he, he's a very, very, uh, you know, tricky, awkward customer to face." Mate, mate, he. He didn't just confide that to his teammates. Um, he 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 did initially. He said, "Cheap as I find Brian Strang difficult." And then one of one of his teammates, it could have been Dizzy Gillespie. I can't remember. Or maybe it was a bit before Dizzy's time. But but one one of them, Damien Fleming, possibly. Yeah. Then then outed Steve Waugh and at, at a at a dinner or at a function or something, and he said, "You know what, Steve Waugh said that." Uh, Brian Strang was uh, one of the most difficult bowlers he ever faced. And then Steve Waugh was asked about it and came clean absolutely straight, just said, yeah, absolutely, yeah, definitely. I would rather be facing Kirtley. I know how to handle Kirtley. But when you've got this bloke bowling booming away swingers at you at 120 kilometres an hour and late, um, he said, I just found him really, really difficult. Which was wonderful, I thought. Lovely compliment. Beautiful How compliment. is Strangy? Goodness. Oh, he's well. He's, you know, he's um, had his issues. He's Still a bit other world. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely right. And and another another two spells that I remember, Manners as well, was Kirtley Ambrose. In fact, three spells. Six for 34 versus South Africa in, in South Africa's return to test cricket in Barbados, 1992. That final day where South Africa thought that, well, we only have a, a handful of runs to get. And wasn't there a lovely story of Merrick Pringle who had ordered a whole bunch of champagne already to celebrate the fact that they were going to win the test match? And then Ambrose just blew them away on the fifth and final day because do you remember that there was always that annoying rest day somewhere in the test match so they had the rest day came back to bat needing virtually no runs to win 
And uh, Kirtley Ambrose just simply took care of the business and took six for 34. I'm sure you remember and, that. And Courtney Walsh, he and took Courtney the other four. four. wickets, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ambrose again, uh, when he took seven wickets for one run against Australia to end with seven for 25 in 1993. And Kirtley Ambrose again, when he took those, when England were, were bowled out for 46 in 1994. When that devastating spell of bowling, which Richie Richardson, the captain, referred to as uh, Kirtley's only getting lukewarm now. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kirtley definitely is on that list. Uh, I should have uh, mentioned him. Yeah, he's deaf, absolutely. Yeah, and several, several spells as well I, um, uh, that I recall. Because I had also had the pleasure of watching him uh, play county cricket as yeah, well in the late 80s uh, for Northamptonshire. So, yeah, uh, he's... Definitely on that list, and there, as I said, there's there's a few others, um, but it's it's fa just fabulous stuff, isn't it? I mean, we, we, people talk about highlights. Uh, what, you know, what are the what, what, most people gravitate towards uh, particular innings, yes, yes. great hundreds. Um, but uh, yeah, you think back to the to the great great spells of bowling, and uh, I think them there, I find them more exhilarating. Um, A.B. de Villiers is, um, so, for example, you know, I've had the pleasure of, uh, of commentating on, I think, just about every innings A.B. de Villiers ever played. Mm. I mean, I've certainly been on every international tour that, uh, that he's been on, so for South Africa. Um, and watching him score the, the fastest 100 and the fastest 150 and the audacity and the skill and the courage, um, just, you know, it's staggering. Um, Really staggering. He's the most explosive and creative and audacious batsman that I've ever seen. Yeah. But when people ask me, what's your favourite A.B. de Villiers innings? Again, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. No doubt whatsoever. It's when he made 30 off 220 balls on the fifth day of, uh, of the second test match against Australia in 2012 to, to force the draw. Fafdu Pasi made... Um, uh, made a hundred on his debut, yeah. but what I found, see, every time a batsman or any batsman, a team has had to to bat out to try and save a test match, or to save a first class match to to force the draw. Coaches and and captains and experienced players for for centuries have said, you know, you you still have to hit the ball. You know, you can't you don't, don't just go too defensive because uh, you know you're not familiar with that and. So, you know, still hit the bad ball and, you know, still accumulate the runs, just play it as a normal innings. And de Villiers, his view was, why? All my life, coaches have said to me, and I have believed, if you're going to do something, commit to it 100%. Don't have a bit of this and a bit of that. You, what, what are we trying to do here? Mm -hmm. We are going to defend... If I, as if our lives depended on it, runs don't matter. So why are they telling me to hit the bad ball? I might make a mistake, but if I block the bad ball, see what coaches and other players, as I said, for centuries have, have believed is that that's too much of a departure from normality. And therefore you, you're not used to that. It's unfamiliar territory. Therefore you'll make a mistake. But really what they're saying is batsmen aren't good enough to go into one mode and one mode only. They're not good enough. They're not mentally strong enough. De Villiers that day, he, he, he did not hit the ball. 
in 220 de Villiers, A.B. de Villiers did not hit a boundary. Incredible. He did not. He's such a, a good defensive player. He didn't even outside edge one past the slip cordon down <laughs> to the third man boundary for four by mistake. He blocked everything. It got to the point where Australia's bowlers were bowling him long hops and full tosses to get him to hit the ball because they, they began to realise that it, without him hitting the ball, he, he was never going to make a mistake. He wasn't going to miss one. He was so focused on doing what he had been told was impossible, and that was not hitting the ball. He blocked absolutely everything, or left it. So everything on the stumps, at whatever pace, whatever length, he blocked. Otherwise, he left it. And I just found that absolutely mesmerising. I mean, you know how we like our food, Dean. Oh, yes. Um, it's, like being, it's like being led into... Um, uh, a five-star, eat-as-much-as-you-like buffet and being told you can only have the bread rolls with no butter. <laughs> and you go, yeah, fine, that's fine. That's In fine. fact, De Villiers didn't even take a bread roll what? that day. Yeah, I, it was. That's my favourite innings. For I know it sounds a bit contrary, but no, 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 you know, that's, that's the skill of the man. So now, here's an interesting conundrum for you, man, as you used words such as commitment and 100%. But then... Then could there be a counter-argument as to if he was so committed to obviously batting for his life, what then was was the situation or what was the story then with him saying that he's available, he's not available, he, he's retired, no, he's prepared to come out of retirement. Would that be classed as a form of commitment then as well? I mean, surely it wouldn't. Uh, this is a, a subject that's um, very very close to my heart and I think that uh, I believe that uh, de Villiers was very very badly let down by um, by cricket South Africa and the men in charge um, you know there was there's no precedent there's still no real precedent on the record out in the open precedent of of cricketers needing time away from the game or suffering from anxiety or falling out of love with the game, as there was with Marcus Truscothic. Mm. I got to uh, spend time with, uh, with Truscothic during the 1990 World Cup, um, and we did some commentary together, which was uh, a great, great privilege for me, because uh, he's always been one of my great heroes for what he did, speaking about, um, uh, about mental health. Um, again, I mean, the, you know, the, he was, there was almost no precedent uh, for it. Um, cricket's a, a brutal and, and ruthless game. It's one of the reasons that, uh, that that we love it and why it's addictive. But Druscothic walked away and he said, I, you know, I get anxiety. I, I suffer from, from bouts of, of depression. Um, and being in a cricket environment for too much time um, affects me and, and my family. And, and so he was honest and open about it. South African society, and I have to say Zimbabwean society, is just still not mature enough yep. to, to cope with that. Yep, um, you know, and look, De Villiers had been on the road for 12 years. Um, and and like, like, a, like a marriage, like most marriages after 12 years, you know, you, you're beginning to, uh, well, you either take each other for granted or, or you know, you, you don't stop doing the, the little things for each other. And you begin to, to wonder whether your love is still there. Um, and you take a little break from each other and you realise that actually, you know what, we do still love each other. And de Villiers 
I, I got very frustrated because, as you mentioned, on half a dozen times, he said, oh, I need to manage my workload. And, uh, you know, and then big South African society being what it is, um, then people said, um, oh, shame. What, he, what, he wants to manage his workload. Oh, what, so he's getting paid a million dollars in the IPL and he wants to manage his workload. What, yeah. So is it, is it too much playing 20 overs? That kind of cynicism, like complete, total lack of, of understanding, um, it really upset me. And, you know, de Villiers sounded wishy-washy and confusing and um, he wasn't able to state his case not because he was English as his second language, oh, no. but because the environment which he was trying to explain it was not mature enough to accept what what he was saying and what he was trying to say. So I got I got very very upset about that. And you know when people said, "Oh, so Abi de Villiers wants to pick and choose which games he plays in, does he?" I, that really upset me as well because he should never have been picking and choosing the games that he had to play in. Why? Not because he's A.B. de Villiers, but because that should have been done for him. For him, yeah. His bosses should be doing that. Yeah. You know, we had moved beyond the era, Dean, of players saying every single time you pull on the cap, every time you wear a shirt for your country, it's as important as the next. Every tournament's the same as important. Every one-day game's just as important. Rubbish. Absolute nonsense. No, it's not. It's not. Mm. It's rubbish. Don't say that. And... So, de Villiers finished a particularly gruelling IPL campaign um, with the Bangalore Royal Challengers with immense, immense weight of expectation on his shoulders, huge commitment as well uh, to sponsors. Yes, yes, he got paid a million dollars for a season. Yes, he did. Personally, I think he, he earned it. But he came back from the IPL and, and said to uh, to uh, Harun Lorgat, who was chief executive at the time, said, um, South Africa were due to be touring Sri Lanka in uh, in a, a, a month after the IPL or three weeks after the IPL, and uh, for for two test matches, you know, just two arbitrary test matches, five one dayers uh, in August uh, or July. I can't remember July or August, and he said, "Would it be okay if I?" was not selected for that tour. I've toured Sri Lanka 12 times. Uh, I've, done, I've done my bit here to Sri Lanka and I, I really feel I, I need a, an extended period of time at home. And instead of, of course, AB, take as much time as you need, the kind of attitude that we're seeing from Cricket Australia in recent years, yes. um, by the way. Yeah. Instead of that, he was uh, he was told that uh, well um, you know it's all or nothing, and uh, and if you do start uh, stepping out away from tours, then you can't expect to be on the uh, A grade uh, salary. For goodness sake, it wasn't about the money. Yeah, it wasn't about the money. It was about taking some time and and falling back in love with the game, reassessing your relationship with the game. But he was badly let down, and then a few days later. 48 hours later, he released that uh, video on his website in which he said, I'm, I'm not going to play for the Proteas anymore because uh, I believe that it needs to be all or nothing. No, that's not what he believed. That's what he was told by he his bosses. Told. It was a very, very sad day. Goodness me. And and that's what a lot of people don't know, Manners. You know, they don't know the ins and outs. So as you very correctly say, so many people who were probably his biggest admirers lost a lot of 
respect even, if I could use such a harsh word, because they were of the opinion that this man didn't know what he wanted and, you know, he was stringing fans along. And uh, there you are. It was a wonderful explanation that you've just given there. So, gosh, we could carry on talking forever, but uh, I'm sure, despite the fact that you're on lockdown, you'd like to spend a bit of time with your family, who you've just uh, alluded to. So, who in your... Now, you've watched a lot of international cricket. You've watched virtually every test team, and you've also had the joy and privilege of working with TalkSport too. Uh, that, I guess, is a conversation we can have for another time. But let's let's stick to a Southern African perspective. And I'll ask you, who, in your opinion, revolutionized South African cricket? So, for example, an A.B. de Villiers, a Cajiso Rabada, whoever, whichever name you come up with. And because you spent so much time watching Zimbabwe cricket, I'm going to put the cat amongst the pigeons properly. And I'm going to ask you, in your opinion, who revolutionized Zimbabwe cricket? Wow, revolutionized. Um well, um, I'm, I'm not sure there's uh, there's been a, a, a revolution necessarily in. Uh, well, I suppose many revolutions, haven't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, enough, yeah. is obviously one there, but yeah. um, I, but I'm not sure we can uh, say revolutionised South African cricket because I, he he's more revolutionised the global game. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think. Um, uh, as a as a player, uh, or as a coach, or as a administrator, the the biggest um, innovator, and and I think probably the man that uh, that put a largely amateur and naive South African cricket on the road to uh, to the successes, and he was a, a revolutionary. Sadly, he's no longer with us. Um, but that would be Bob Woolmer. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, so, so he was so far ahead of uh, of the game. So many of the things, you know, wicket keepers. When when you were at school, and when I was at school, and for a century before that, wicket keepers were taught to take the ball behind the stumps and then to go forward to break it in the attempt right. to make a run out. Right. Well, in nineteen ninety two, ninety three when side-on run-out cameras were first used, Woolner realised that this was all wrong because in the split second of time that the ball takes to go past the stumps into the keeper's gloves and then forward again to break the wicket, batsmen would be safe. So he was the one that taught Dave Richardson, completely counterintuitively, first of all, well, he didn't teach him. He suggested to him that he practiced catching the ball in front of the stumps and then with the impetus of the ball going on to break the stumps. Right, right. And wicketkeepers all do that now. Um, every wicketkeeper does that now. But it was Bob Woolmer that, uh, that introduced that. Uh, and because he recognised that technology w- would allow wicketkeepers to affect far more runouts. And there are loads of, uh, of other... Um, Loads of other innovations that we that we now take, for example, uh, for granted, I should say. Dermot Reeve was the captain of the, the Warwickshire team and Woolmer was the one that uh, was the coach that said to him, um, why, if you, everyone slog sweep spinners, but why don't they slog, slog sweep seamers? Uh, you know, the, the, there's less deviation there's, and he had technical reasons for it. And Dermot Reeve was the first player. Um, that I ever saw, uh, who was who would slog sweep seamers. Now it happens all the time, of course, yes, to take it for yes. granted. So, so Bob Woolmer is uh, my answer to uh, the man who, who made the greatest change to South African cricket. And 
um, in Zimbabwean cricket, um, well, probably Ozzy Aspute, wasn't it? <laughs> probably, yes, because a lot of things happened when he, when he took over. Um, uh, he was able to quite spectacularly cause a great deal of, of division, but then he was also... I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Dino. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not being, uh, I'm not being in any way facetious. No, no. Um, and and y- you know what? For, for all uh, the problems and for whatever uh, people say uh, about him and, and the changes that happened in uh, Zimbabwean cricket, it, it, the, the, the truth is, and I don't know what else happened behind the scenes, but the truth is that until Ozzyus Vute, cricket in Zimbabwe was a white game, predominantly a, a white game. Um, majority of, uh, of players were, were white, um, and, and that, that needed to change. Yes, it, it did. You know, and it has now profoundly changed and it, it needed to happen and it wasn't happening organically um, and there was some resistance uh, to it happening um, so if it if it wasn't Ozzyus Vute or, or Peter Chingoku it would have been someone else it needed to change mm. and I and I hope and believe that uh, Zimbabwe cricket will grow I mean it will rise uh, once again and that you know there are far more cricketers playing the game now um, uh, I, I hope. I mean, that's what I believe. You know, there are new names popping up all the time, um, and and now that uh, it is a, an in- inclusive rather than exclusive game, I think that Zimbabwe. I hope that they can rise again and once more punch above their weight and win games and, and compete in tournaments and series that uh, they don't really have a right to. Yeah, but, I mean, but that's interesting. You know, so Ozias Vute was was very famous for causing a lot of mayhem, but at the same time, as much, and he did, I mean, there's no doubt that he caused a lot of damage to the game initially, but then he was also very instrumental to rebuilding bridges again, wasn't he? I wasn't there all the time, but yes, that's that's my experience. Um, you know, um, again, I, I need to be careful with my analogies. I, I do sometimes overdo it, but if if the the you know if if Zimbabwe if the building of Zimbabwe cricket couldn't be fixed with a lick of paint and uh, and uh, and a little bit of uh, redecoration, then it, it perhaps it, it did need to be to be knocked down um, in order to be rebuilt. Mm. And um, some people may argue that it's never been the same and never will be the same, but I, I totally agree with you. It, it was a majority, well, it was predominantly a white sport and that needed to change, and it has changed. Now, of course, you will get some arguments that I don't think we, you and I, will go into. You know, there'll be counter and there'll be pro. But just to conclude, Manus, in terms of commentary, and I mean, this is something that you and I love doing, especially radio, who is the... Which commentator do you like commentating with the most? Uh, and I suppose you're not going to tell me which one you like commentating with the least, but I'm sure you could give us some interesting stories about, you know, who you get on with the most and which one you need to, well, I guess you struggle a little bit with without going into too much personal details. Well, my favorite commentators are, are the ones that... Um, I don't get to commentate with, I, I suppose, because they, they'd also be ball by ballers rather so, than uh, analysts. Certainly. But yeah. um, I mean, I was a huge, huge fan of the late Tony Cozier. I think Fuzzy Muhammad is uh, is outstanding. Yes. Um, 
you know, really, really enjoy those. Uh, but there, there have been some some wonderful players. I mean, I, I tell, tell you what, I do. Sorry, I was going to say there have been some wonderful players, and there are some wonderful players who've mm. who've really worked at their at their craft. Um, I I get irritated when I hear players, fine players, very good players with big reputations on the field, move too quickly, too soon and too lackadaisically into uh, the commentary box and and players who believe that whatever they say, whenever they say it, however they say it, will be just fine because they're who they are and they scored 8,000 runs or took 300 wickets, you know. Um, that That irritates me and I think it's and I would say this because I'm biased, but I think it's, you know, it's it's sad that there are fewer and fewer commentators, particularly on television, who are broadcasters, who yeah. are yeah. who have been trained and and, and have studied uh, in journalism and or, or broadcasting. Um, that uh, I think is is a shame. I mean, um, I'd like more work, and I didn't play first class cricket. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> but but you know that I I do think that. Um, that it's it's daft, I think. Really, um, I know that that the IPL, for example, or T Twenty cricket and T Twenty leagues around the world are more about show than uh, than they are a bit more about the performance rather than than actually the the cricket. Um, but it's still, you know, I think there's a great deal of skill involved, and I and I don't mind watching T uh, Twenty cricket. But what makes it really quite hard to digest? Is when you've got uh, a former player and sometimes a current player mm. who who thinks it's fine just to sit there and go, oh, what a shot! Oh, what a shot! Oh, he's given that. Oh, look at that! Oh, it's another six. Oh, another four. I mean, that's um, that doesn't work for me. It's horrible, and, and maybe maybe it does work for other people because producers continue to hire these chaps, and it just, <laughs> I'd rather have a little bit of insight. So for you and me, it doesn't work. But we are not producers, are we? Like uh, we, as you just said, we're still scrabbling in the dust trying to find more work. Uh, you're right. So so. Um, it, it is down to the producers. Manners, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you for being a part of Dean at Stumps. I'm not sure if there's anything you'd like to add uh, and or maybe anything you'd like to ask or add, but honestly, thank you for being a part of Dean at Stumps. It's been a joy and a pleasure just having a good cricket chat all over the place, remembering games gone by, talking about the game, talking about personalities, and that is one of the many reasons why we love what we do, broadcasting and, and talking about this game. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. I want you to just make me one promise. Yes, anything. That you stay safe, and that uh, that uh, when the the world heals itself, um, I won't say return to normal because no, uh, I don't be normal, particularly yeah. want it to return to normal. I think we should be exploring and looking for a new normal. Yeah. Um, I think we need to treat uh, the world and ourselves uh, a little less selfishly. Um, and uh, that's not you and me, but, uh, but but we can only start with ourselves. Uh, but I want you to stay well and stay safe. And uh, when travel uh, starts uh, happening again, then we're going to go for uh, some peri-peri chicken, a glass of red wine, 
and you can have a tequila and I'll have the Irish coffee. <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, tequila and Irish coffee sounds like a wonderful combination with the red wine and the peri-peri chicken, lots of it. Uh, but also, equally importantly, manners that we will continue. And, and you've done this, you, you've had to do this many times. I guess I could fall into the A.B. de Villiers bracket as well. Um, well, the so-called A.B. de Villiers bracket where I want to do kind of say, well, I, I'm not achieving what I've wanted to achieve after 19 years. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, you know, because of the fact that many people who would have started out their career 19 years ago would have achieved a lot more in terms of travel, recognition, uh, rewards that they would have got everything. And sometimes it does get to me a bit. And you have always been the one who has inboxed me and said, what do you think you're about to do? And I shall keep doing that, mate. <laughs> I shall keep doing that. <laughs> don't, ever, don't ever be discouraged. Cricket needs your passion and dare I say, you need cricket. I certainly do. Neil Manthorpe, thank you for being on Dean at Stumps. Pleasure. Hi, this is Danny Morrison, and you are listening to this wonderful podcast, Dean at Stumps podcast. It's a little ripper. And Dino, I know he's missing the double Ds. If you please, Dino Duplessis, what a wonderful podcast. Get amongst it, listen to it lots. It's a ripper. Oh, thank you for the kind words, Danny Morrison. Very nice of you to say that. Thank you very much to Neil Manthorpe as well for an incredibly good chat. It's something that I personally enjoyed. Sometimes it's nice to get away from the whole player profile and just have two journalists talking about the game, isn't it? I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. And uh, we will be back again very, very soon uh, with um, another very interesting guest as well. Somebody who will be making good strides, hopefully, as a batting coach. And I would like to believe then a national coach as well. Until then, stay safe and goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 